What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome to The Exchange. Here is what's ahead this hour. COVID's back in focus. Just as earnings season was about to change the market narrative, the CDC is set to recommend more mask wearing as the Delta variant spreads. Is this a blip on the economic radar or something more? We'll delve into that. Plus, just because you don't own a Chinese ETF doesn't mean the crackdown there won't impact your investments. We'll tell you exactly what's at risk. And is the Fed's economic model flawed? Is Apple's business model all wrong? And is inflation helping or hurting your wages? It's all coming up this hour, but we do start with the markets. Christina Bartzenevelis is here with the numbers. Christina? Thank you, Kelly. So we're seeing equities lower across the board today after finishing mostly higher yesterday. Growth stocks, particularly tech, taking the biggest hit compared to value. So the tech-heavy Nasdaq is headed towards its largest one-day drop in more than two months. China's regulatory crackdown, as Kelly mentioned, on Chinese stocks is bleeding into U.S. tech stocks and could cause investors to rejig their portfolios. And while we have a strong start to the earnings season, Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft are just a few examples that are falling ahead of earnings out after the bell. They're also among the top five heaviest weighted stocks in the S&P 500, so that can create some pressure on the index. And a newer narrative popping up in the West a jet fuel shortage, which sucks because I think I have to travel soon. Just not enough to meet increased demand for leisure travel, which could cause extra stops to refuel or cancellations altogether. JetBlue taking the largest hit right now, hitting uh, dropping almost 8% lower for the day. And last but not least, Bitcoin is coming off yesterday's highs above $40,000 after Amazon denied reports today that it would accept the cryptocurrency as payment this year. The coin is still well off those highs that we saw in April, which was near about $64,000, Kelly. All right, Christina. Thank you very much, Christina Parts and Evelis. My next guest says this week will reestablish earnings as the main driver of stock prices. So old-fashioned. Uh, and he also has what he calls old world versus the new world when it comes to his top picks right now. Let's welcome back Chris Crisanti. He's the chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management. Chris, it's good to have you. And uh, I mean, do you think that's the case? Do you really think that earnings is the driver here? Because the COVID news you know, we saw the markets wiggle a little bit on, you know, some of these reports about the mask stuff earlier today. You know, doesn't that threaten the future earnings trajectory more than what we're learning this week about last quarter? Sure, I think that's possible, Kelly, and it's nice to be back with you again. Um, but I do think there's an opportunity here for patient investors because lately, and I mean over the last month or so, things other than earnings have been driving equity prices, whether it's the uh, Delta variant, whether it's falling interest rates. Today, it's Chinese stocks. Um, but, and the, all those things can affect earnings, but you need to ask the next question, will they affect your company's earnings? And in many cases, the answer is no. And so there's opportunities presented. And I think earnings will drive equity prices over the long term. And that's the opportunity. Maybe you can give an example, because it feels to me like everything um, COVID-related, if you want to call sure. it, that affects you know, earnings prices, you know, because either we're going to be in a pandemic light environment or we're not, you know, whatever, whatever case you want to make about whatever growth is going to look like in the months ahead. This is the main debate right now. I mean, even stocks that are moving big today, like UPS and some others, you know, your exposure to them sure. will depend on what you think is going to happen with the pandemic, right? That, that's right. But I think there's a lot of evidence 
that no, nobody thought the pandemic ending would be a straight line. So we have a Delta variant. We have a population that is partly vaccinated. We're getting there. And so it's easy, I think, to see down the road six months and 12 months that the problems are not going to be COVID related so much as they're going to be other economic issues uh, related. And, and that's what we're trying to keep our eyes on. All right. So, let's so uh, the, the, I'm sorry, there's one other thing I really want to mention, which is there's a contradiction between the terrific earnings we're seeing and the low interest rates. And one of those things is wrong. And, and, and I think we'll find out which one over the next six months. So I think that's a real interesting thing for investors to obsess over. Yeah, no, believe me, we could do a, the whole show obsessing about what's going on with rates. Sure. But I, I'm just going to put that to the side because you do have some interesting picks. Let's talk about old world versus new world. Sure. Otis Elevator is not a name we talk about a lot, but they just had great earnings. What does that tell you? They, they did. And when I'm on when I'm on, Kelly, I always love giving you one old stock and one new stock. But, but Otis Elevator founded in 1853 by Elijah Otis. It, it was actually more recently spun out of United Technologies just last year at the beginning of the pandemic. It's got terrific technology. It is a 19th century company, but these new elevators now are filled with technology. But the, but the thing here, and it's not surprising when you think about it, they sell the elevators near cost, but the service contracts for 20 or 30 years are like an annuity. It's like you know the printers and the ink. So they're taking shares from their most European competitors like Schindler and Kone. And, and so I think they're invigorated like a newly spun out company and they have their own stock and it drives right off the elevator earnings, not off the United Technology earnings. And, and so we're excited to have been owners of that for a year. And I think I think there's more to go. And I'm going to resist elevator analogies like, you know, up, ups and downs and pushing buttons. Yes, thank you. We, we hate those puns. So let's move along to Taiwan sure. Semi, which is at the center of this whole debate sure. over the future of Intel and the future of semiconducting. And we're talking about this next hour as well, what America's role is going to be in all of that. Uh, boil it down for us. Why is Taiwan Semi one of your top picks from here? Well, it's interesting. If you think like I do that uh, semiconductors are the oil of the 21st century, you can't really do anything without them. And, and I cut my teeth 30 years ago as a technology analyst covering Intel when they invented the Pentium chip. And back then, they were the leading semiconductor manufacturer that could do all the totally cool things. But now that mantle has been taken over by Taiwan Semiconductor. And I would argue semiconductors are even more important now than they were then. So the problem for Intel or anybody else wanting to compete with Taiwan Semi is that Taiwan Semi is going to spend $100 billion over the next three years. That's more capital spending than any company we know of. Yeah. And by the way, that's one Otis elevator market cap every year for the next wow. three years. Um, and so if you're Apple or Amazon, even, and clearly those companies got a lot of money, they don't even want to build their own chips. So Taiwan Semi is doing it for them. So they are the arms dealer to the new world of semiconductors. And, and we really like them. We think that position is safe for quite it's a fascinating. long time. I love the analogies and, you know, the trips down memory lane as well. But the old world, new world, and just trying to figure out what world we're in. Chris, we appreciate all of your thoughts and your time today. Thank you. Sure. Thank Chris Crisanti joining me on these markets. Now, I mentioned earnings as the biggest company in the market. Apple has the biggest influence over earnings growth. Last quarter, they beat EPS estimates by nearly 42 percent. The stock is near all-time highs, but it's underperformed some of the other big tech names this year. Alphabet, for instance, is up 51 percent. Microsoft up 28 percent. Facebook up 34 percent. Even Cisco up 23 percent. With me now is Krish Sanker. He's an analyst at Cowan. Uh, with a little preview of what we might expect this afternoon, Krish, what are you what do you make, first of all, of the stock's sort of 
quiet period. We, you know, I don't want to make too much of it, but it's sort of um, underwhelming move this year. Yeah. Hey, Kelly, thanks for having me. Um, a couple of things I would say last year, Apple as a stock did phenomenally well. And, uh, you know, last year was a good year for growth stocks. And earlier this year, what you saw was a cyclical rotation from growth into, you know, cyclicals and value. And clearly Apple did not fall in the category. So that's why you saw a relative underperformance the first six months of the year. And then you started seeing, um, you know, a rebound in the stock from early June, I would say. And I think two things happened. One was clearly there was some shift from, you know, your typical cyclicals to maybe a little bit of growth. But the other thing was what has been very constant the last few months in the Apple supply chain was the iPhone numbers have been extremely strong. Mm -hmm. If you look at most other names, you know, uh, Oppo, Vivo, Xiaomi, Samsung, all of them saw some cuts earlier in the year or sometime in early Q2. But Apple has been really strong. And I think that kind of helped, you know, a rotation back into Apple where earlier in the year, people are looking, when they look at cyclical names, they look at some of the PC names like HP and Dell, and you started seeing that gravitate back towards growth and some smartphone names and Apple stood out thanks to the iPhone. And we have these reports this week that the company may want to boost iPhone production by as much as 20% after last year's 5G super cycle. So why isn't there more enthusiasm in the shares or is it already priced in? I mean, obviously, it's the biggest company in the market. Um, what is the bar this afternoon? If we sort of talk about this in the whispered number sense, where do you think expectations are, high or low? Uh, I would say expectations are for a beat on the June quarter. So I think that is already kind of baked into the stock. So people, most investors do expect a beat to the June quarter numbers. Uh, they might not die to September, uh, kind of like what they've done the last few quarters. Part of the reason is because I feel like until all the Apple stores are open throughout the globe, you know, there's always a little bit of uh, uncertainty and therefore they might give more color on September versus a full formal guidance. So at this point, investors are expecting a beat. And the second thing is, uh, compared to a year ago, the main difference is that uh, people do expect a September release back to the usual cadence for the new iPhone compared to last year, which was more an October release. So that did shift some of the numbers away from the second half of last year. So this, this year is looking like what it should be, a typical iPhone release cycle, i.e. Q3 should be pretty good, a calendar Q3, and so should December quarter numbers. Let me ask you then before we go. So you have an outperform rating, $180 price target. And I think people might be interested how you break that down. Basically a 25 uh, times multiple on the core business, a lot of the hardware, the iPhone, et cetera, the uh, computers. And you give the services business a 45 multiple. Now, obviously, we know why that business is so much more valuable. It's a you know, recurring revenue stream. It's priced in future dollars and all the rest of it. But is 45 times really justified, you think, for a business that can see a lot of churn and has a ton of competition? Yeah, fair enough. And actually, Kelly, I still remember, like, I think th uh, two, three years ago when I launched an Apple and we had a similar, uh, some of the parts analysis. And I remember you asked me the same question. No. But at the time, <laughs> multiples were much lower. Uh, I would say there's been a couple of things that happened. There's been a re-rating in the market in general. So you've seen the hardware business and recurring revenue kind of businesses multiple re-rate. And the second thing is, I would say, when it comes to the services for Apple, yeah, there are a lot of risks, which is like regulatory risk, et cetera. But I would say the biggest thing is the iPhone install base is an extremely loyal install base. And that kind of helps sustain a little bit of the service revenues. So the real question is how much more subs can they get on the TV plus and some of these new programs. But the one thing I would also highlight is that, you know, people tend to look at services as a single line item for Apple. I would say it's multiple line items. You have App Store, you have Apple Pay, and you have like so many other different things that as long as 
many of the businesses are doing fine, even if a few of them are not, you still get the revenue growth rate on the services side, yeah. along with the high gross margin. So I think think of services as not a single business, but multiple business lines. No, fair enough. And I, I'm sure if I asked you about this a few years ago, uh, even you know if you had not performed that, I'm sure it was probably conservative compared to where the, what the stock has done in the meantime. Krish, thank you so yeah, much for joining. Is 2020. Yeah. <laughs> We really appreciate your time again today. Look forward to what we hear this afternoon. That's Krish Sankar of Cowan. Coming up, the Crane Shares, the China Internet ETF, the K-Web, is down another 7, now 8% today. And it's down 24% since Friday as China's corporate crackdown continues. Up next, I'll ask former NEC director Larry Lindsay whether Beijing has gotten overconfident in its ability to both control China's companies and reap the needed rewards of rapid economic growth. Plus, is the Delta variant derailing or simply delaying the economy's growth? We'll bring you some exclusive data from our CNBC Fed survey ahead of tomorrow's rate decision. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. China's tech crackdown is raising tons of questions, not only about the government's agenda here, but also the long-term market risks as we're seeing play out. The ETF, the K-Web, is down big again today, down more than 8% at the moment, and it's down 24% over the past week. Alibaba, Pinduoduo, JD, NetEase, Baidu, these are the five largest U.S.-listed companies in that ETF, and they have lost a combined $184 billion in market value. Get this. Just since the start of the month, today names like Pinduoduo down 12%, Alibaba's down 6%. At the same time, China's bike-sharing company, Hello, Nick's plans to go public by flexing its muscle as China putting its economic growth in jeopardy. Joining me now is Larry Lindsay. He's the president and CEO of the Lindsay Group and former director of the National Economic Council under George W. Bush. And he just published a novel called Currency War. Larry, it's great to have you. It might be a novel, but it definitely deals with issues in confronting China. What do you make of the latest moves by regulators there? Well, I think it's an important lesson that what matters to Xi Jinping, which is a little bit different than what mattered to his predecessors, is control. It's controlled by the Communist Party. That is first, second, and third. And growth is now going to take a, a back seat. So that's, I mean, if growth takes a back seat, we've all been talking about the last 10 or 15 years, how China's growth model should be emulated by the world. And it's they're going to be the biggest economy coming out of the pandemic. And they're changing the rules for how you can do, you know, this this kind of capitalism. Have they gone, gotten ahead of themselves? You know, have they gotten overconfident? Is it going to work? Um, well, <laughs> the trouble with uh, forecasting is it's tough to do, particularly in the future. Um, it's their decision, it's Xi Jinping's decision. He has made that decision. Uh, You can read any of his speeches at the various party congresses or or, or working groups. Uh, He has taken a decidedly different tone. He would like to see 
uh, China emerge as uh, the leading superpower. Um, now, the official target is 2049, but he's now extended his tenure. And frankly, that's where he wants to go during his term, if he possibly can. China as number one. So basically, China thinks it can be number one, even if for the time being they're cracking down on some of their biggest companies I, on, you know, out of concerns about data. And, and is this because the SEC here has been pressing Chinese companies for more disclosure? I mean, it seems like DD listing in, in New York was one catalyst for this latest crackdown. Um, I think the main purpose of the crackdown is control by Beijing. Uh, they want to have more um, uh insight into what's going on on the various platforms. And um, it's as simple as that. I think that concerns about the SEC and things like that are, are really quite secondary. All right. Let me ask you, Larry, since we have you this week and since maybe we're not going to know the China answer, uh, if you suggest for, you know, 25 years, uh, although we'll probably get some sense in the next year or two of, of how this is about to play out. And investors are, are keenly aware now of the market risks. I mean, Kathy Woods has been selling out. Um, but let me pivot and ask you about the Fed. We have the decision tomorrow. You are in the camp where you say, you know, as, as concerned as you are about inflation, as much as you talk about their models are wrong, you don't necessarily think they're going to start tightening because the uncertainty created by Delta here, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you think kind of delays that whole trajectory. Right. Well, my job is not to tell you what I think they're going, what they should do. It's to tell you what I think they're going to do. And all political institutions, including the Federal Reserve, um, their main objective is going to be survival. That may be a little bit harsh. But you have to realize what they have is uh, kind of a loss function. What if what if you're wrong? Well, there's two ways they can be wrong. They can either be uh, too late or too early. And for them, the penalty for being too early, that is tightening and having something go wrong in the next six months, is very, very high. On the other hand, you know, so what if they delay? I mean, it's Yes, we'll have a little bit more inflation, uh, and they'll deal with that when they get around to dealing with it. But uh, the cost to them of waiting is much, much lower than the cost to them of moving and turning out to be wrong. Yeah. Let me close by asking you this question. You know, in writing this book, and, and I can't imagine what an undertaking writing a, a work of fiction like this is, especially when it deals with monetary policy and geopolitics and all the rest of it. What is the main lesson or message that you want readers to come away with as it relates to, you know, it's called currency war. Obviously, you have concerns about what's going on with the dollar. The entire crypto community is basically exists to see if Austrian economics is, is sort of a better approach than Keynesian and, and all the rest of it. So what, what message do you want readers to walk away with? Well, number one, I said China wants to be number one. Xi Jinping wants to be number one. One of the ways that they expect to be number one, say in the next uh, 10 years, is going to be to replace the dollar as the world's dominant currency. And once they do that, all kinds of problems happen here, including funding our debt. So that is an objective, and that's one of the objectives we talk about in the book. Um, the second is a basic message. Money is all about confidence, 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 confidence. And once you lose the confidence, it is very, very hard to regain. And if there was 
any real long-term risk in what the Fed is doing is that there may come a magic moment when folks simply lose confidence in their ability to manage monetary policy that is separate from the political needs of the uh, whoever the incumbents are at the time. Well, that's fascinating. And again, for anyone who wants to sort of go through that thought experiment, uh, they now have this book to do so. Congrats, Larry. And, and it's painless, you. hopefully, right? Yeah. Lots of action <laughs> and sex and stuff like that in there to, to <laughs> take it down like a, with sugar-coated. My dad did steal it, uh, my, my proof copy, and uh, and he read it very quickly and, and really enjoyed it. So uh, I, that's I, great. I passed along that review. Uh, Larry, thanks again for your time today. We, we greatly appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Kelly. Pleasure to be Larry here. Larry Lindsay of the Lindsay Group. Coming up, Advance Auto Parts and AutoZone have been on a roll this year, both up more than 40% in the past six months. Now Raymond James is making one of these names its top pick in the space and downgrading the other on valuation concerns. We'll sort out which is the better buy. Plus, UPS is on pace for its worst day since October after U.S. deliveries last quarter dropped 3% from last year. We're going to hear from the CEO, Carol Tomei, directly later on in the show. Shares are down more than 8%. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Here's a check on markets. After another ugly session in the Chinese and Hong Kong markets overnight, the U.S. indexes are hanging in there but starting to see more downside pressure. So uh, we were down 266 at the low for the Dows. We're near that right now, down 220. It's about a two-thirds percent drop. Much bigger declines, though, for the S&P, which is down more than 1 percent, and especially for the Nasdaq, which is down more than 2 percent. We'll have more in rapid fire about the exposure there to this Chinese crackdown showing up in some surprising places. Elsewhere, in terms of the movers this hour, Activision Blizzard is down almost 7 percent after reports that 2,000 current and former employees signed a petition sharply criticizing the company for its handling of a discrimination lawsuit by the state of California. This is the biggest drop in shares since March of 2020. Meanwhile, shares of ThreadUp are on pace for their second worst day since going public. They're down almost 14 percent right now. This after they announced a six million share secondary offering. They also shared a business update coming in slightly above estimates. You can see again, investors not thrilled. Fellow newly public stocks like Figs and Oatly are moving lower today as well. With some pretty sizable declines, Oatly is down 7%. Figs, pretty much the same story. Both of these IPO'd in May. Figs is down 30% from its highs so far, and Oatly is down 40% from its peak. We'll definitely keep tracking these names. Well, FaceTime and chance meetings aren't the only advantages in-office workers have over their colleagues. They could also see higher wages. Conference Board CEO Steve Odlin joins us to discuss that and his tips for employers facing labor shortages next. Remember, you can catch the show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm John Fort. Here's what's happening at this hour. On Capitol Hill, four police officers are the first to give testimony at the hearings into the January 6th insurrection. They described sometimes harrowing moments facing the rioters. On that day, I participated in the defense of the United States Capitol from an armed mob, an armed mob of thousands determined to get inside because I was among the vastly <clears throat> outnumbered group of law enforcement officers protecting the Capitol and the people inside it. I was grabbed, beaten, tased, all while being called a traitor to my country. In Britain, quarantine rules are being eased for some essential workers. 
prison guards, veterinarians, and garbage collectors are among those who will not have to self-isolate for 10 days if they come in contact with someone who tested positive for COVID. The move is being made to ease labor shortages in key areas. Instead, these workers will be tested daily. And at the Olympics, the U.S. women's softball team getting shut out by Japan in the gold medal game. Japan won 2-0 and ended an American rally in the sixth inning with a dramatic double play. And on the news, Simone Biles explains why she pulled out of the team competition. And we'll have more to get you ready for another evening of Olympic competition. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Kelly, back to you. All right, John, thank you very much, John Ford. Well, the Delta variant and potential for more COVID restrictions not slowing consumer confidence yet. The conference board's July index just hit the highest level since February of 2020. That was before the pandemic really hit. And it's closing in on its pre-pandemic records. While the survey shows a rosy picture, is this optimism in danger? The CDC is expected to reverse its indoor mask policy later today for vaccinated Americans in COVID hotspots. Could a move like that dent confidence in the economy moving forward? Steve Odlet is here now. He is the CEO of the conference board. Steve, there's also reportedly they're going to recommend that all K through 12 students and teachers wear masks. I ask all of this because obviously what happens in schools relates to the presence of people in the workforce and all of it ties back to consumer confidence. What does today's news you think mean for the rebound we've been experiencing? Well, you know, today's news was uh, pretty consistent with last month. So we have two months in a row, which are at very high levels. And as you noted, uh, close to pre-pandemic highs. The good news is, is that it stays very high here, but the, the bad news is it's starting to plateau, Kelly. And then when you get into the data, what you see is geographically where COVID is uh, coming back, where you're seeing some resurgence, the CCI, the Consumer Confidence Index, went down. So I think that there's some risk here that if we get a little rebound, if we scare some people uh, when the mask uh, mandate comes back, that you could in fact hit consumer confidence. And as we all know, that then could hit spending and GDP. And I, you know, I know you're, I should ask an economist or maybe someone in Washington DC about this, Steve, but you know, when the pandemic first hit, we had many rounds of stimulus checks. Yes, now you have the child tax credit going on, but what offsets you think this loss of confidence and momentum this time around? Well, you know, there, there's a lot of good good news in this. I mean, people are still very bullish. They're telling us they're going to spend like crazy. I mean, automobiles uh, intent to spend as high as ever. And we know it's been very high up to this point. Housing, uh, both in terms of the houses themselves, but also everything around that furniture um, and uh, appliances and so forth. Uh, but they are and they are expecting to be the stock market to be uh, somewhat uh, 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 they're bullish on the stock market. So they're expecting that growth to continue even in the face of greater than 6% inflation, which is the numbers that they gave us. So I, I think that there is you know, still some optimism here. And then you've got this whole government stimulus, whether you know, it's the infrastructure plan or, or the other uh, forms of stimulus yeah. that they're gonna put through, uh, that could really uh, juice things again for the economy in the fall. Let me switch gears a little bit and ask you about the dynamic. I think we're about to have a big societal uh, discussion and reflection upon it. If a lot of people are now gonna come back to the workforce post Labor Day, which is, which was the plan at least kind of before Delta got a lot worse. What's the dynamic going to be like between those who are showing up again and those who had been there the whole time? I, I mean, people are already anecdotally asking, well, hey, you know, if, if saying, OK, we've been here the whole time. Do we get something for that? Or, you know, for companies, like you said, are they going to pay you more if you are willing to come back into the office or are they going to pay you more because it's the only way to get you back into the office? 
Yeah, those are really important questions. There's a lot of stuff going on here. You know, people are um, eager to come back and, and on one hand, but then there are some people who, uh, you know, are staying away from the vaccines and are afraid of getting back into the crowd. And especially if you come back with a mask mandate, that could spook some people again if the Delta variant or the Lambda variant uh, picks up. So, you know, you're seeing wage pressure rise at this period of time. And so I think the key here, our advice is flexibility. Uh, you know, particularly with women, I think women have dropped out of the labor force at a higher rate than than men. And uh, a lot of that's tied to taking care of uh, family, children and, and elder care. So if there's flexibility that people can continue to work remote and, and also come in, if there's flexibility on hours, if there's flexibility on wages, if there is the ability to uh, go to places uh, that are lower cost and so not higher just in the, uh, the the big urban areas, but spread your workforce around and and contribute to the uh, to the to the remote dynamic. All of those things are things that would work well in terms of finding the right people and and keeping everybody calm through this period of time. But I think the voluntary nature of of coming back and you know, some element of flexibility is really important. All right. Steve, we'll leave it there for now. We really appreciate it. Steve Odland of the Conference Board. And to the confidence point he was just making, uh, we're keeping a close eye on the markets. The ripple effects of China's crackdown, Musk disparaging Apple, and why lumber could see a late summer surge is all coming up in rapid fire. We're back here in a moment, but let's take a look at the NASDAQ on the way out, which is now at fresh session lows, down more than 2% or more than 300 points. A mix of headlines from China and even maybe the COVID issues we were just discussing. We're back in a moment. All right, everybody, welcome back. And let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar right now. In this rapid fire, joining me to break down the headlines, we welcome CNBC's Bob Pisani, Seema Modi, and Michael Yoshikami, who is Destination Wealth Management founder and CEO. And we are definitely going to start with the China stocks today, where it is a sea of red across the board as panic selling sets in. And people like Kathy Wood are dumping entire positions. Alibaba, Tencent, JD, all down about 20% this month and more than 40% off their highs. The downdraft is starting to bleed into tangent. ETFs around the market, too. So listen, it's not just about if you own China ETFs. Take the Vanek Esports ETF. It has a 20% weighting to China, and it has Tencent, Billy Billy, and Netties as top 10 holdings, down more than 10% this month, and it's down 7% this week. So how wide-ranging is this crackdown? Michael Yoshikami, we are glad you are here for this discussion today. What is your advice to investors? Uh, be very, very careful about what's happening in China. You know, my contacts uh, in China, not only governmental contacts, but corporate contacts in places like Hangzhou, where there's huge startup activity, that's where Alibaba was founded, um, are all freaking out right now because the government has really decided to flex their muscles. And um, when the government decides to do that, it has a chilling effect. Look what happened with Tesla, Kelly, earlier this year, where they literally were called um, by regulators to report why Tesla was having quality problems, according to the regulators. So. Uh, I would be very, very cautious on China stocks right now. This is not over. It's just starting. And, Bob, you have been tracing the developments between the U.S. and China in terms of this kind of battle that's going on over stock listings and data transparency. So the SEC here has been pushing forward, saying we want more transparency about who owns these Chinese stocks. And China is responding by saying, well, as we talked about on the show yesterday, we don't want our, our companies listing overseas and then following their rules instead of ours. Yeah, I think this is that is an issue. But I think what is going on with the Chinese Communist Party is really the big overriding 
issue. They want more control over their companies Correct. and they want to know what their companies are doing. I think there's a broader concern that the investing community has, which is that international investing in general is in trouble. You know, China's underperformed the U.S. for a decade. And not only China, but even Europe, even Japan, even Korea, the U.S. has been the place to be for more than a decade. So if you're an international investor, you're an international fund manager, you're constantly defending yourself about why you're investing overseas and why your clients should be investing overseas. We're all sort of taught now, oh, we should have 25% of our investments overseas and 10% in China. And we have these ETFs that allow these global allocations. And I think that now the issue is, is China risk so high, the regulatory risk, that maybe we should rethink that whole uh, weighting and segment China out of the rest of the global investments in general, which wow. are already not doing very well. I, I, you know, I just can't imagine that this is what the Chinese wanted when they've been very effective at sort of entangling themselves in the international systems, financially or otherwise, and then exercising their weight that way. But Seema, you have an interesting twist on how investors might be responding and looking for other places that they can go for attractive opportunities. Yeah, Kelly, at a time when we don't know the extent of this regulatory review out of China, worth noting that uh, the amount of money going into some of the other emerging market nations, for example, India, it's now raised about $10 billion in fundraising for Indian startups. That's double the amount versus the same time a year ago. And even if you look at equity market performance of India and Brazil versus China, you see a, a wide divergence over the last three months. Perhaps uh, a look at how investors are repositioning themselves, trying to evaluate the risk around this regulatory review. And if you want that growth story, do you look elsewhere? All right. Real quickly, Michael Yoshikami, I just have to get your thoughts on the point that Bob just made. If the net result of this is China being removed, for example, from some major international equity indices, why would that be something that's in the interest of the Chinese leadership? Uh, I have well, The Chinese leadership is all about control. I mean, that's really what it comes down here, Kelly. And I think they're willing to take an economic hit if they can have more control. Look what they did with one of their most famous actresses, uh, Fan Bingbing, which probably many people have not heard of. Uh, but she was really accused of really uh, tax evasion. And what happened to her? She basically disappeared for a year, Kelly. So I think that at this point, China's all about control. I want to comment quickly. Just I know you got limited sure. time, but I want to talk about what Bob said about international investing. Here's the thing that investors need to be aware of. If you buy U.S. companies, are you really buying U.S. companies or are you buying U.S. companies that maybe also have some exposure outside the United States, like mm -hmm. Apple? If you buy Apple, is it only U.S.? Absolutely not. So if you're buying Apple and international, maybe you have more international than you really need because you're already getting international if you're buying Apple alone. Yeah. Well, if investors are really rethinking 40%. this exposure, it would be a complete sea change in what has dominated, you know, even U.S. large cap uh, stocks or tech stocks over the past decade. So, it, no, it's a really important point. I think it's something to keep in mind with Apple's earnings tonight and with the direction that this all goes. On that note, let's quickly mention what Elon Musk had said about Apple. He took some shots at them and Tesla's earnings call last night. Listen. Our goal is to uh, support the advent of sustainable energy. Uh, it is not to create a walled garden um, and use that to bludgeon our competitors, <laughs> which is sometimes used by some companies. <laughs> See, so Elon Musk basically trying to differentiate his complete his business model entirely for Tesla, opening up the supercharger EV network from Apple's approach to the iPhone. Yeah, and Elon Musk certainly not holding back. Interesting to see how he did go after Apple multiple times. And in regards to that comment about that walled garden, throwing shade, a direct reference to 
uh, the app developers like Epic Games that have been, been in this legal showdown with Apple. And it's sort of part of Musk's DNA, right, to go after the underdog, whether it's the Reddit trader, the crypto enthusiast, and now uh, the app developers that are really trying to level the playing field with Apple. So lending his support in some ways. All right, Michael, you want to talk Tesla or you want to talk lumber? You get uh, one or the other. Tesla. That's a little more. All well, right. We can talk lumber. Sure. Let's all right. All right. Uh, Let, let's let's close this out then with lumber, because I do want people to know this has been kind of the bellwether for the market this year. We saw it spike dramatically in the spring. It has completely collapsed from its highs. Bank of America is now upgrading Weyerhaeuser on what they say is possibly a late summer surge in lumber with an unexpected pickup in demand met with a proportionately large and panic-driven recovery in price. So Weyerhaeuser stock is down nearly 12% over the past three months, but lumber futures are down 60%. So, Michael, I, I would be curious because this kind of underpins everybody's investment themes right now and what your take is on lumber and inflation generally here. Well, generally speaking, I, I am a believer that you're probably going to see transitory inflation and you're going to see headwinds when tax increases come. But this is really a lesson in behavioral finance, Kelly, more than anything else. A year ago, what was absolutely not going to do well? Any a travel company, any company that had anything to do with retail. Then all of a sudden the world says, hey, wait, 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 it's calming down. Maybe those are going to be good stocks. Lumber. Oh, my goodness, everybody's going to stay in their house. There's going to be this huge shortage. And then all of a sudden, maybe there's not such a shortage after all. You want to buy when people are selling. And as the market continues to sell off lumber, other commodities, and frankly, sells off other assets because they're out of favor, that's when you want to look to pick up arms. All right. Maybe with the exception of Chinese stocks, based on how that earlier discussion went. Uh, but yeah, not yet. Okay. Not yet. Okay, so Bob, we'll give you the last word here then on this Weyerhaeuser call, the you know divergence in commodities and the actual stocks, and just the outlook generally as we move through earnings season for the companies that have pricing power and can navigate this environment versus the ones that can't. I, I used to be in the real estate business. My father was a home builder in the 70s and the 80s and uh, the 60s. I grew up carrying Weyerhaeuser lumber, so I have a good sense of what Weyerhaeuser lumber feel like. They're a lumber company. They make... They grow trees and they make wood products out of that specifically for new homes and the remodeling business. This is a classic cyclical industry. It's very, very capital intensive, requires a lot of equipment to keep it running. And it's cyclical because it's very dependent on demand and very dependent on pricing power. Now, recently you saw them back in the news because lumber went through the roof and then it went all the way back down again. You saw a little move up in Weyerhaeuser last year on exactly that idea. But now now we're in that the, the back end of that cyclical phase for Weyerhaeuser. There is evidence now that the uh, the new home market may be cooling off a little bit, maybe because demand was too high and prices got too high. But again, this is a classic cyclical business. The question is, are you comfortable investing in those kinds of cla classic uh, yeah. cyclical business? Well, I think Personally, I'm very nostalgic for Weyerhaeuser because the, the just having to haul all that wood around <laughs> in the 1970s left me with a permanent scar on my back. But I think it's a great company. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, uh, you know, in, in closing that, uh, you know, if you look at the case Schiller home price number this morning, the fact that prices are now up 17 percent and keeps accelerating, I think, has uh, everybody a little bit more interested in, in housing again. Guys, we'll leave it there. Seema Modi, Bob Bassani, Michael Yoshikami, really appreciate this edition of Rapid Fire. Very fast moving afternoon here. We want to look at the Nasdaq where we're close to session lows and some of the Chinese names in particular are taking a big toll on the activity right now. Pinto Oduo is down about 12 percent. Uh, JD.com is down about 6%, and Activision Blizzard is down 7%. As we mentioned earlier, they have kind of a 
separate issue going on with their employees. But we do have video game exposure to China, which is the point Michael Yoshikami was making, that a lot of your typical uh, names do have exposure to China, even if they're not, you know, the traditional China ETF uh, stock trades. We're a little more than 24 hours away from the Fed's interest rate decision tomorrow. And while inflation is sure to be a hot topic, economists are also paying close attention to what's going on with the COVID Delta variant. We're going to dig into the potential growth hit right after this. Welcome back. The CDC is set to reverse its indoor mask policy to recommend them for fully vaccinated people in COVID hotspots as the Delta variant continues to spread. So how concerned should we be about the economic recovery? Steve Leisman joins me now with the results from the latest CNBC Fed survey just a day ahead of the Fed's latest rate decision as well. Steve? Kelly, yeah, the Delta variant has definitely become a factor in forecasting the economy. But right now, respondents to our Fed survey believe the impact will be Limited. We asked about five areas. Nearly 80% of the 34 respondents do not see another round of lockdowns coming. 52% don't think there's going to be widespread mask mandates. That was uh, asked before the CDC acted. 30% did see them coming, though. 55% do not believe it will delay the economic rebound compared to 39% who do. But the big impact, 64% think it's going to delay the return of workers to their offices. Another impact, while 40% thought the pandemic was over in the June survey, 60% now say it ain't over yet. Thomas Kostrick, senior U.S. economist of Pickett Wealth Management, says the virus is going to persist and indeed we will have to live with it. It's going to be more of a microeconomic rather than a macroeconomic problem going forward, he says. The average respondent did push ahead by one quarter, that is, to the first quarter of 2022, their estimate of when the economy will be fully recovered. Here's the GDP outlook. Growth overall a little affected. GDP is still seen growing 6.7% this year. That's a big number. 3, 4 in 2022, that's still above trend. And that's about where the estimates were in June. Perhaps because of the Delta variant, little change also seen in Fed policy despite high inflation forecasts with a November taper announcement. That's what people think. And a January enact enactment now expected. Roughly the same as the prior survey. The first rate hike, Kelly, don't hold your breath. Not until October 2022. Well, we had Goldman bring down their forecast this week. We wonder if others will follow suit, especially um, with some of the mask mandates and just the concern about COVID and the way that people might react uh, to anything from kids being in school to going to public play, you know, the whole daisy chain. I think that's possible. Uh, Goldman was a little more optimistic than the street, so they did bring them down to where we were or where we are in our rapid update, uh, Kelly, which, as you know, is a very sort of uh, changing thing. Every time we get numbers that affect the economic data, we plug it into the rapid update. So Goldman brought theirs down to where the average was for the street. The interesting thing about Goldman was 2022. They believe that the office sector, the service sector connected to it, is going to still lag because they still see people are a substantial part of the workforce still working from home, and that could become a permanent part or permanent fixture of the economy. And that's going to mean that the service sector is not going to come back the way it was before. That's a great point. All right, Steve, thank you very, very much. Steve Leisman uh, there. Coming up, shares of UPS are falling today and on pace for their worst day since October, down 7.5%. They had strong earnings, but they warned of a second-half slowdown as the economy reopens, and their volumes weren't as inspiring. We're going to get more from CEO Carol Tomei herself about all of this next.
Welcome back. Shares of UPS are sinking today despite an earnings beat on the top and bottom lines and huge jumps in domestic and international revenues. But CEO Carol Tomei warning about a slowdown in the back half as the economy reopens and people return to shopping in person versus online. She spoke to CNBC in an exclusive interview about these results. Frank Holland is here with more for us. Frank. Well, here there, Kelly. UPS on pace for its worst day in nine months, despite EPS nearly a quarter above estimates, record free cash flow and gains in its high margin business. A few of the other highlights included average revenue per piece increasing by 15 percent overall. In the U.S., it rose by 13 percent. Also, significant margin expansion year over year. But there was some downside. U.S. revenues, those missed estimates. U.S. volumes also down by 4 percent. CEO Carol Tomei, speaking exclusively to Jim Cramer for Mad Money tonight, said investors really shouldn't be surprised by the numbers. E-commerce sales are booming, but the rate of growth is not the same as it was last year when everyone was sheltering in place. And in fact, if you look at our performance in the second quarter, our average daily volume was down slightly in the United States. We predicted that. In the past, we chased all volume, regardless of whether or not we made money on that volume. Today, we're leaning into the part of the small package market that really values our end-to-end network. We're leaning into small and medium-sized businesses. And that higher margin SMB business increased to 27% of the business this quarter from 22% just a year ago. And according to Deutsche Bank, margin guidance, another factor that might be hitting this stock today, UPS guided for around 9% in the second half of the year. It was 11% in Q2. And right now we're seeing FedEx shares also trading lower on that report. Coming up on Mad Money tonight, Tomei talks a lot more about the possibility of share buybacks, the better not bigger strategy, and much more, Kelly. Yeah, I'd say we like to call these soundbite from the future, Frank. <laughs> You'll hear that and, and a whole lot more uh, on, on Mad Money tonight. Frank Holland, thank you so much. Really appreciate it today. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.